Welcome in to Other People's Shoes. As you know, I am your host, Neil Matthews. Thank you, thank you so much for joining me today on today's episode. I do have to let you know, this is an episode we are going to be talking about mature nature items. We are going to be talking about porn addiction and the dangers that surround that issue. So if you're a younger listener, be aware this is an episode kind of geared towards more of an adult audience. So be aware of that. But I do have to say, because it is August 18th, It needs to be said. Today, 20 years ago, I had the opportunity and the great privilege to marry the love of my life. And I can sit here today in Sky Studios, what I lovingly call the home studio, and say that it is because of pure desire and the ministry that they are a part of that I am able to say that I've been married 20 years. So thank you, Pure Desire. Thank you, Nick Stumbo. Thank you, Nick Stumbo's team at Pure Desires. Thank you. Thank you for saving my marriage. Because truly without them, I don't believe I would be able to say right now that I have been married 20 years to my high school sweetheart, truly the love of my life. Elizabeth, I love you. Without further ado, Lucas, please take it away. Hey, come take a walk with me, not like you used to do. Do something different and put yourself in other people's shoes. Open up your mind and open up your eyes and change your direction, change your perspective. Welcome in to Other People's Shoes. As you know, I am your host, Neil Matthews. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, I don't know what it is about 2021 already. Some things are happening, maybe for you, maybe much like me. Weird things keep happening. Like one thing in particular that happened way back in March. Do we remember March? Show of hands, anyone? Really quick, back in March, on March 10th, was a Wednesday. Now, for some of you might be thinking, so what? Big deal. March 10th was a Wednesday. Well, it was my birthday, and it was kind of cool. I got to sit with some former North Carolina Tar Heel basketball fans, which as you guys know, who've been around the show long enough, huge dream come true to, to, to make that happen. Well, it's kind of ironic again, because now it's August 18th. And I don't know if you guys know this or not, but 20 years ago today, at roughly about 715, this girl that I had met way back in high school decided to marry this knucklehead that you're listening to currently. And so 20 years ago today was my wedding day and my wedding anniversary. And so ironically enough, I don't know if I'm using that word ironically wrongly, I, I'm sure I'll get letters on that, which I'm fine with. Conveniently enough, I'm sitting with a man that I believe his organization truly helped me get to this milestone of 20 years together. So let me introduce him for you the best I can. And here it is. He is with Pure Desires Ministry. He's the executive director, in fact, of Pure Desire Ministry. Now, for some of you, you might be thinking, what is Pure Desire? Well, let me help you with that. So Pure Desire's whole mission in life is to help those who are struggling with their sexual integrity. And in order to do that, they really want you to get freedom from that sexual behavior that maybe has had you in that stuck moment, that moment where you just can't get out of it. Well, they're here to help you with that problem, that pattern, that that cycle that you keep kind of running into that has made you feel powerless. Well, Pure Desire believes that they have a design plan to help you get free from that in a life-changing way to help with your sexual brokenness and help you in an effect for your future because everybody wants to get free of this, but they just don't want to come out of that shadow. They don't want to come out of that stuck moment. Well, my guest today, as I mentioned, is the executive director of Pure Desire. In fact, he continues to believe that churches can be a place of healing. I know that sounds weird to some of us. Church healing doesn't seem to go together, but I promise you it really can happen. Where Pure Desire is leading the way in that respect of of bringing healing and help to churches. In fact, he's so passionate about it and in his ministry is evident. And you're going to hear that today. Help me welcome him in, Nick Stumbo. Nick, how are you today? Hey, Neil. Great to be here. Doing well. That was quite the introduction. I I always say we get out the Dyson, the red carpet. We kind of rolled that out (laughs) for you. So there you go. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. So you guys are in the Pacific Northwest. So really, I could jump in my car and probably be there in about four-ish, five hours. So I'm, I'm excited that we're in the same time zone. That's always fun. Yeah, yeah. Me- means we're hanging out over our lunch break today. That's right. Well, hopefully we won't take too much of your lunchtime for this. But Nick, I'm excited to sit with you for a lot of different reasons. One, I know you yourself have walked through this walk that really few want to walk through. The, the walk of getting clean from, you know, sexual addiction, pornography, things like that. And so I'm excited to sit with you for that reason. But I'm also excited to sit with you because I think, you know, knowing a little bit of your background and, and walking through some of the studies that, that I've done on, on you and, and Pure Desire, you really have a heart for people. And I think that's so important and so valuable in this day and age. So I just want to thank you before we get too far down a road. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, you know, that's what we do at Pure Desire. It's for so many of us here, it's our own story of pain and brokenness and, and that struggle. And, and when you find freedom and hope and your life is different, you know, you can't help but share that because you remember what it was like to, to be stuck in that place that, uh, that you feel like there's no hope or no way out. And so it's just exciting to be a part of a ministry that, that really is what we do is we come alongside those that feel hopeless and say, here's a way. And if you walk in it, it leads to freedom and it has for so many people. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It really just is a reflection of our story and what God has done in our lives, honestly. That's fantastic. And again, I just love the fact that you guys are really on a mission and, and really focused on doing that. With that being said, uh, Nick, we always like to ask people this question. I know you've been on a number of shows. You've been on uh, Grace Enough uh, podcast, a good friend of ours, Amber uh, Columns. So we appreciate her, your information with us and, and the ability to sit with you. But also, I'm just curious about this because we always ask this question, what size shoes do you wear? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm quite tall, uh, about six foot four, and I actually wear a size 13 shoe, which I'm glad it's not 13 and a half, because if you look at shoe stores, 13 is usually the, the upper limit of what they carry. Um, and, and after that, they quit, they, they don't carry half sizes. So you either have to be a 13 or a 14. And, you know, if you get up to a 14, boy, those shoes just look really big to me. So, um, yeah, I've, I've settled in at 13 and that fits me well. Well, that's awesome. Is there a certain style or brand that you like more than another? You know, I'm a, a big runner, and so a lot of my running shoes have been Brooks lately. I've just found that the way the Brooks shoes fit me um, have worked well, although I have had some nagging injuries lately, so I'm wondering if I need to look at my shoes there, but yeah, we'll see. I'm an A6 guy myself, and of course, the, the Wall of Jordans, but you know, that's just... That's also how it is. So but that's awesome. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know that you were a runner. That's great. What do you, what events do you like to run the most? Uh, well, it depends season of life. You know, before we had kids, I, I would run a couple of marathons a year. Um, that, that much training just takes so much time. So right now it's more about the exercise and I'm, you know, putting in 30 to 40 miles a week and I'll do a, a 10 K or a half marathon here and there just for the fun of competition, but focusing more on some mileage goals these days are just seeing how many miles I can do in a year. So that's fantastic. Yeah. I, a couple of years back, back pre COVID, I had committed to running a 5k, uh, once a month, which, you know, is pretty exciting, right? I mean, that's, that's 12, five Ks, obviously if we're doing one, one a month. And uh, I was really excited because it was coming towards the end of the year. And I was like, great, you know, I'm just trying to get it one more race in and we were going to Florida on vacation. And I thought, well, you know, it's been fun. I got 11 in, you know, it's not going to happen. And my godmother who went with us to Florida found a race for me in SeaWorld of all places, Orlando SeaWorld. Nice. And I was able to run and, and this is kind of embarrassing, but I was able to run the, the SeaWorld run in Florida mind you, in a gingerbread costume because it was Christmas themed. And so in Florida wow. at 80. No, I've never done that. I don't run in costumes. 
80, 90 degrees, you know, 10 a.m. I'm here. I am wearing this full blown, you know, polyester gingerbread suit, and it's uh, it's quite hilarious. So yeah, people want to know about that can go check out our social media for that for sure. So that's awesome. So Nick, uh, again, I know you're in that Portland, uh, Tualatin kind of area, but if I was gonna come out and hang out with you for a day, what what's something we would go and do together? Maybe it's go for a run. I don't know, but what would we go and do that's kind of fun and and maybe tells a little bit about who you are. Yeah, you know, where our offices are located, we're right at the base of the Columbia River Gorge and, um, you know, heading up to Multnomah Falls. And what a lot of people don't know who've only driven by on the freeway is how much great hiking trails there are up beyond all of the falls that you can see from the freeway. So uh, that would be a great activity, either a a day hike or, you know, a, a jog if we were feeling up for it, but just some of the natural beauty up there in the Columbia River Gorge, um, place we would go and probably hang out for some good local coffee or micro brews. You know, that's what Portland is known for. So um, I'm into both of those. We, we'd share our stories over uh, a basket of tots at the local McMinimins restaurant and, um, and uh, share pictures from our hike that day. That sounds fun. I almost want to just drive up there and do that right now. Yeah, that sounds well, way more fun than what I have planned for the rest of the afternoon. But sounds just, good. just saying. So, so that's awesome. So, so Nick, getting into this, how many years did you really struggle with your porn addiction? Yeah, you know, it depends how someone might define the word addiction. Um, in terms of struggling, you know, I, I had an experience that's probably common for a lot of people that in my, you know, early years, 10, 11, 12 years old, was at a friend's house and was exposed to a, a very explicit movie that is, uh, my friend's parents were watching that night. And that was kind of my first introduction to human sexuality, nudity. I mean, stuff that was way over the line of anything I had seen in my very conservative Christian home. And it just, it kind of exploded a world in my brain that I didn't know what to do with other than it felt, it felt secretive. Like I shouldn't tell mom and dad. And it, it felt shameful because I found myself drawn to things that that a part of me was saying we're wrong or bad, or I shouldn't be seeing this. And yet uh, another part of my brain very much liked it. So in a, in a sense, you could say, did, did an addiction start then a struggle? I, I don't know what you would call it, but at that age, something definitely started in me that I didn't know what to do with other than to hide it and get into this binge purge cycle of sometimes, you know, acting out with pornography and really, binging on, you know, buying a magazine at the local store. Cause in, in those days that was before the internet was um, widely available. Um, and then going months of thinking, Oh, that's wrong. It's bad for me. I shouldn't do it. Um, but I would say it was really in my early college years where access to the internet and pornography being available and free at the click of a button was a draw that was stronger than my morality or my ability to say no. And I, I'm not excusing myself by my choices, but just, it, it was um, a pattern that I was overwhelmed by. And so, and that's where I start to define it as addiction because I would say in my late teens and early twenties, I was very actively trying to eradicate the behavior from my life. I, I felt like it was destructive to relationships. Um, I felt like it was undermining my own sense of well being and, and my faith um, as a Christ follower, feeling like this is not something appropriate. And so I was, taking all of the steps of having accountability software on my computer and accountability partners I would report to, and yet it would keep happening. And um, so I, I really believed it would just go away, so to speak, that as I got older, got more mature, got married, got into ministry, that that I would just be done with those you know childish things, kind of thinking like uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, that when I was a child, I thought like a child, but, but when I became a man, an adult, I put childish ways behind me. And 
I just thought that's how it would work. But I found myself um, all the way through my 20s and into my early 30s that even though I was married to a beautiful, godly, wonderful woman, and we had a great marriage in a lot of respects, and I was a pastor of a church that was doing well and was successful, I would still find myself veering back into that binge purge struggle addiction to pornography. And so um, put that way, it was probably 14 or 15 years that I was actively looking to stop a behavior that at the same time, I couldn't seem to stop on my own. And um, it really had brought me to a point of destroying my marriage before we got help. So that was uh, about 11 years ago now in 2010 that our journey into freedom um, really began. So that's what I was going to ask you. So you talk about this destructive behavior. You talk about these things that, that really had you stuck. I, I would imagine if I'm not putting words in your mouth, that's kind of what I'm hearing you say in that. Yeah. What Was there a moment or a breaking point? Because I know for me, there was a breaking point. There was a moment that really was like, okay, something's got to change here. Something's got to give. Uh, but was there a moment for you that, that just kind of the world just crumbled around you and you, you knew you needed to get help? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think for us uh, in my story, there were two crucial moments. Um, one really involved my wife and the pain that this behavior was causing her. Um, because I'd been honest with her when we were engaged, hey, this is a struggle I have. You know, I'm working really hard. It's under control. Last time was the last time. You know, those kind of empty promises and empty phrases. And, and my wife believed me. And and so when I would struggle as a married man, I would come to her a few times a year to say, hey, I'm still struggling. I'm really sorry. Here's why it's going to get better, though. Here's why it's the last time. And she would be very, very hurt by it, which honestly, as a young married guy, I didn't really understand because in my thinking, it wasn't about her. It was never because of a lack of sex in our marriage or because she wasn't pretty enough that I would go seek out these things. It was this old pattern that I was just waiting for it to go away. And so I would say to her words like, well, if you just understood it like I do, if, if you saw it the way that I do, you wouldn't feel so hurt. Well, after 10 years of this in our marriage um, and in my repeated confessions, the pain level for her was so high, she was ready to walk away. And, and that was the, the first moment I would describe is there was a time um, where I had acted out again to pornography and felt that same rush of guilt and shame and stupidity. And how could I do that again? And, and the recognition that I, I needed to be honest with my wife again, only that time, instead of thinking about how I felt, it was probably the first time I really considered how much it was going to hurt her when I shared this again. And it was that awareness of her pain I think that made me realize and this, I mean, it sounds sad and funny looking back that it took this long, but it was probably the first time I really thought of her pain more than my own and, and said to myself, I don't think the issue is that she doesn't get it. I think the issue is that I don't get it, that I haven't taken seriously how deeply it is wounding her and undermining our marriage and to feel her pain actually made it a lot more serious. And, and that, that was our breaking point for me, the fear of, I'm going to lose my marriage over something I've tried to explain away for 10 years as being that not that big of a deal. Um, so that was a crucial moment, but it's only one of two points because at that time we didn't know what to do. We didn't know where to go for help. All I knew to do was to try harder to build the wall of boundaries and guardrails higher, you know, all the stuff I wouldn't do, get rid of my smartphone. Don't use the internet for entertainment. Um, but I knew that no matter how high I built the wall, there was still this fear that I wasn't changed on the inside, that there was a pardon that was still drawn towards it and living in this terror of, 
when I'm in the wrong place in the wrong state of mind, I could act out again. And if I do thinking I could lose my marriage and I didn't know how to stop it, um, that was fearful. And so the, the second crucial moment was actually a couple of months later hearing about Pure Desire Ministries and hearing about the counseling and the groups that would become for us our pathway to healing. And so making that decision to actually get engaged, to not just try harder on my own, but to engage with a healing plan that included the counseling and being in groups, that was the other defining moment. Because without, without the first, without my recognition of the pain it was causing, we wouldn't have been available for the second. But without that second moment of actually finding a pathway to healing, I would have been just stuck in that try harder mode that I think eventually would have led to the destruction of our marriage. So those are the two moments that I think of as being really the, the moments of change for us. That's such a powerful statement to say the moments of change, because I, I think for so many, and, and maybe you can even speak to this on a personal level, but I would imagine for so many, there's shame in coming clean. There's fear in coming clean. There's this isolation of coming clean. This people are going to view me differently. And I would imagine, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I've been a pastor too. There's this expectation as a pastor that you're supposed to have your life all together. Your your kids are supposed to be the most angelic, you know, beings that ever came to walk the earth next to Christ, right? I mean, there's just all these expectations that come with it. And to me, there's so much of a freedom, I would imagine, in your heart as you speak, you know, was was kind of maybe stopping you. I don't know. But but now that you're free of it, you now can just walk in that light of being okay with where you were, maybe not okay with where you were, but you're now better with, with where you are now. I don't know if any of that made sense, but yeah. I guess to say it, it just sounds so great for you to come clean on that. And, and I just, I value that too. Yeah. Well, early on, there definitely are those hurdles, that shame of what will people think I'm supposed to, I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to be the guy I'm supposed to have it all together. And that honestly, Neil is a, a place that many Christian leaders are stuck and maybe leaders in general, that when we get to certain positions in life, we feel like, well, I'm not supposed to have this struggle and there's not a lot of freedom to be honest about it. And so it, it almost inadvertently reinforces the message of shame and secrecy of like, I just need to keep it to myself, figure it out on my own, get better and not bother other people with it. But sadly, that's the very environment that perpetuates the struggle that I'm working on it by myself in secrecy and shame. And we're going to just keep struggling. And it's, it's a, sad, a sad thing for leaders and especially Christian leaders, where I think we make a lot of assumptions and, and false assumptions that we assume that because they've been trained in the word of God, that will somehow have made their personal life, um, you know, flawless. That we assume because they're prepared for ministry, that they know to, how to handle their personal sexuality. And I say those are false assumptions because over and over, what I know of my own story and now countless of pastors I've talked to, when it comes to our training and equipping as pastors, there is zero training that is done on how to manage our sexuality or how to have healthy sexuality. And so we just assume that pastors and leaders go figure that out somewhere else by themselves, and then they should come into ministry ready-made. And yet the truth is in my life and for so many pastors, no one has helped us figure out how to mature or, or be successful in this area of our life. And because nobody's talking about it, we internalize that message of, okay, this is something I deal with on my own and, and I'll just try harder and it should go away. And so when it doesn't, we're in this double bind of I'm still struggling, but nobody knows, but they've called me pastor and now it's too late. I can't tell them or I, I'll no longer be the pastor. 
And for a lot of us, that's the only thing, you know, I went to undergrad, you know, what's my degree in? I have a degree in pastoral ministry. I don't know if you've thought about this, Neil, or for your listeners, but but a degree in pastoral ministry is not super transferable. You know, there's not a lot of careers you can apply for that they go. You can't go work at Nike with an undergrad in pastoral ministry? I'm shocked by that. Yeah, that's not highly valued. Yeah, the one job that I am qualified for is the one job I could disqualify myself for because of my struggle. And so am I going to be honest about it? Not if I fear that my career is on the line. I mean, because there, there does there comes kind of some brass taxes in this. Like you, you've got bills to pay. You've got a family to take care of. You, you've got a house, a mortgage that has to get covered. And if you think if I disclose my struggles with pornography, I could lose my job and not be able to pay for our house and get my kids clothes and food. What what are you going to choose? Well, you're going to choose secrecy and almost feel like it's noble because, well, Hey, at least I'm keeping my job. And so we just need to see the, the double bind that a lot of leaders live in And the answer isn't just to shame them into being better. The answer is to say, let's provide healing pathways. Let's provide avenues where we can allow our leaders to be real people. And yes, we want to hold our leaders to a high expectation uh, about their character, but, but rather than just assuming they can get there on their own, let's help them achieve that level of integrity in their life because they all start out. I kind of make this joke when I'm talking with churches, like something you need to know about every single person who is your pastor is they are first and foremost, a man or a woman. And and as a man or a woman, they have struggles that men and women have. And just getting the title pastor didn't make those go away. And so how as a man or a woman, could we allow our leaders to be people who are also in process and, and, and can find healing, even if they're serving as a pastor? I just think that's so powerful what you're saying. So I'm going to give you a hypothetical sort of scenario here. So uh, I have a friend. <laughs> yeah, we all have. We all a know friend. who that is, right? This right? Is for a we friend. All know. Yeah, this. Is, I'm asking on behalf. I always say like on behalf of a friend. Like I'm asking for a friend. So uh, my friend's name is Zach, and Zach is you know this gregarious guy. Loves you know working with young people. Loves seeing young people come to Jesus. You know he's not the senior pastor because he has no aspirations to to do that. He wants to live and, and breathe in a youth group environment, which I know nowadays is like, well, is he a creeper? Is Zach a creeper? No, he's happily married. He's good. He's, he loves, you know, he just loves kids and loves seeing them grow and be successful. Right. And so in that, you know, Zach's been married quite a while now and, and, you know, he's had his struggles with pornography and, and gotten free and, and, you know, much like you said, Hey, promise this time it's the last time. And Zach gets hired by a church and, you know, he, he falls into the temptation, like, like any of us trying to get free, trying to get clean, falls into the temptation again, gets found out by his wife, confesses to the church leadership and loses his job over it. Now in that I've heard people say to my friend, Zach, the church was wrong. The church should have never, you know, fired him. You know, the church, you know, should have, you know, forgave him, should have restored him, should have all this other stuff, should have, should have, should have. But the reality is, is that because of that, we'll say let going or parting of ways, Zach is now freer because he's now not carrying that burden around anymore. Do you think once a pastor has come and confessed, now I'm going to ask your opinion on this. Once a pastor has come and confessed, and I know every situation is different. Once he's come and confessed, his wife has forgiven him. God's forgiven him, obviously. Should that pastor be able to, to be restored as a pastor again, if that makes sense? Or have they completely disqualified themselves? Yeah, you know, that's a powerful question. And, and one of the ways I would think about it is this. What message when the church 
decides to fire a pastor because they were looking at pornography. And you're right, every situation is different. So I don't want to oversimplify it because there are definitely a whole lot of other factors that are part of a story. But in just this example where it's they were just looking at pornography, when we fire them and say to the church, well, we had to fire Zach because he was looking at pornography. What does that say to the 68% of men and the 25 to 30% of women in the church who are also struggling with pornography? The message to them is not here. If you have that struggle, it's not allowed here. And so that 68% of men or 25% of women will take their own personal struggle and shove it down deeper and decide if I bring that up, I mean, if they fired the pastor, what will they do to me if I reveal that I struggle? So I would ask that question in terms of the culture or environment we want to create in our churches. And because I think most people would stand up and say, we want to be a grace-based environment where people know that no matter what they're struggling with, they can come to Jesus, they can come to us and we'll help them, which I think is a great attitude. But if that is only available to the church and not the leaders, you're not actually a grace-based environment. If the leaders are exempt because they have to somehow be above any real struggles, it's not a grace-based environment. I believe creating a grace-based environment in church starts with the freedom for the leaders to also be people that get help and are in recovery. Now, I, I believe there are parameters where a, a pastor would need to step down, where they need time out of ministry. If there are illegal things that have happened, if if they are, I mean, you joked about it, there are creepers or situations where someone has crossed inappropriate boundaries with minors. They may not be a safe person to ever be in ministry again, but I'm thankful that by and large, that's a very, very small percentage of the stories that are actually happening. There are a lot of people like in the story you described that they have an unresolved battle with, with their lust and temptation and giving into it. And, and they, they just need someone to help point them towards healing. Like I said, in our story, I wanted help, but we didn't know where to go. And until we knew there was a pathway, I would have stayed stuck. And so I, I think there are so many um, situations in which if, if a leadership team at a church was on board, if they understood that there were healing processes that a leader could walk through and find success in their uh, trajectory, that they could be even better pastors uh, because now they're not leading out of this performance mode or having to, to act like they have it all together, even when they don't, when they can lead out of their vulnerability, out of transparency, out of the beauty of their own story, that is far, far more influential than when they're just performing well as a pastor. You know, in fact, that's, that's kind of what I would hear from people. You know, I, I was the lead pastor at our church for five years, and I would say I was in performance mode. I was trying to preach well and lead well and kind of hide all the personal stuff. And when we went through this year process with Pure Desire, at the end of it, I stood up and did a public disclosure with the support of my elders. I acknowledged my addiction to pornography. I asked for my church's forgiveness for failing them in that area. And then I asked for their help to start groups. I said, because I know I'm not the only one who struggles. And I know we need to help men and women in this area, and we're going to go after it. And, and from that moment on, because that door had been opened, I was much more real about my humanity. And that doesn't mean everybody knew everything all the time. I think there are appropriate layers of sharing, but it means I, I was leading not out of performance mode, but out of a real vulnerable place. And I would have people come up to me in that next year all the time. And they would say, man, Nick, your leadership has just gone to a whole new level. 
And, and I, I know they were well-intentioned, but honestly, it would drive me crazy because there'd be this voice in my head that said, okay, all that I've done different in the last year is acknowledge what a schmuck I am, all the mistakes that I've made, and how I'm relying on Jesus because I can't do it in my own strength. And they keep telling me that makes me a better leader. Um, but that, that was the truth of it that I was having far greater influence out of my brokenness and, and just modeling what did it look like to rely on Christ and his forgiveness and to find transformation. That was far more effective than just trying to act like I had it all together. Um, so I, I think that's an encouragement I would give to people, your vulnerability, your story, your authenticity. And, and I would add to that uh, along with change, right? So we don't just want to be vulnerable. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm always an angry person. And I yelled at my kids this week and, being stuck in your anger, that's not necessarily going to help people. But the vulnerability, if you could say, man, I've been a very angry person and here's mistakes I've made, but here's how I'm getting help. And here's how God is meeting me. And here's how community is transforming me. What that says to everybody else who struggles with anger that goes, oh, me too. I struggle with anger. And if, if you have found some help, I'd like to know what that help is because I'd like to deal with my anger too. So I, I think it's just a paradigm we need to look at at churches to say, if we want to be a grace-based environment, that has to include the leadership. Because if everyone can be a real person getting help, it, it changes the entire culture of a church. I love that a lot. So I'll pass that little segment on for my friend, Zach. Yeah, hopefully Zach is listening to this. And it- I'm, I'm hoping Zach listens. Uh, he does email me from time to time and DM me on Instagram. But but I love this. I love what you're saying. First off, I, I think that's so great to have that grace-based environment. I think more churches need that. If I'm going to get on my soapbox too and, and just echo that sediment, mm-hmm. uh, I really do feel that way. And I, and I think so many aren't grace-based environment. They say they are on the outside, but when you really get on the inside, they're, no, they're not. And I think that's maybe why people are turned off by church. Just saying no. That's my little soapbox, so I'll jump off. You have this amazing quote. I think it's you. So if it's not, you can correct me, but I think it's you. So I'm I'm contributing you to this quote. It says, you will never regret the wall too high that was too difficult to get over, but you always will regret a wall too low that was easy to step over. That was you, wasn't it? Yes, that was me. Why is that quote so impactful to you personally? Yeah, I think it underscores what the healing process looks like, that In terms of healing from an unwanted sexual behavior, we have to identify a couple of areas of our life. We have to understand the the pain or the wounds that are driving our behavior because ultimately using something like sex or pornography or, you know, drugs, anger, like whatever we're using to kind of cope with life is being driven by something deeper, unresolved pain or wounds in our life. And so we have to dial that in. But that doesn't mean we live without boundaries. We also have to dial in that that we live in a world that is going to be constantly bombarding us with pressures, temptations. I mean, we have to be honest to say, I live in a very sex saturated culture. And so if I'm trying to find healing and sobriety from these behaviors, but I don't have healthy guardrails in my life, I'm going to just keep crashing and burning because of the kind of world we live in. I mean, think about it this way, Neil, it's only in the last 20 years. I mean, and in two decades, that's such a tiny slice of human history. We have gone from, you would need to go to the corner store and ask a real person for a magazine behind the counter to get pornography to now I can be sitting in a locked bedroom with, you know, all by myself watching anything I want on a phone. I mean, that's a tremendous change in availability and accessibility that honestly, the human brain hasn't learned how to handle well. And so if we want to be successful in um, living lives free of pornography, especially if we're trying to break out of a pattern, we have to initially have some very, very strong guardrails. 
along with the deeper work that we're doing to understand why am I making those choices? So that's where I have found, you know, I'll, I'll say in groups like, Hey guys, if you're trying to break free from pornography for this first year, you might need to get rid of a smartphone. And, and they're, they look at me like their, their heads are trying to calculate, can you live without a smartphone? Or I'll say, you may need to get rid of your TV. You might need to get rid of the internet in your home and only have internet access at work or somewhere public. It's like, well, what do you mean? And what I'm trying to express to someone is like, if you want to break free, you may have to live differently. Now that doesn't mean for the rest of your life for all time, but, but initially you've got to get a, a sober space where you can do that deeper work. And if you keep crashing and burning, you're, you're, you're delaying or elongating how long this will take. And so that's where I say, I have never had a guy come back because I've had many, many men in groups that have gotten rid of smartphones, gotten rid of the TV, changed jobs because of the environment there in terms of coworkers that were too triggering, pretty extreme radical stuff. And I've never had one of them come back and say, that was so stupid. Why did I do that? Why? That was too extreme. Like every one of them has said, I am so glad I did that. Now on the flip side, what I have had is guys who kind of, you know, they poo poo the idea like, Oh, come on, that's weak or that's stupid. I, but you know what happens? They keep relapsing. They keep going on their phone and, and, it becomes a dumb phone because they make dumb decisions. They, they keep watching stuff on their computer or TV. They shouldn't. And they will come back and say, I really wish I would have chosen this stronger guardrail sooner because it's causing more pain. And now I'm in an even worse place. And so that's why I say, if initially you're trying to break free, build the wall high, like look at what, are, and I, I don't want it to just be arbitrary, like cut out the whole world from your life. Cause we're not trying to avoid the world, but really look specifically at, what are the areas that for me are my greatest areas of struggle? And if it's your smartphone, get rid of it. If it's the TV, get rid of it. If it's certain people, you may need to get rid of them until you have a track record of health. And that's where the quote comes in then to say, I really believe you won't regret a wall so high that you couldn't get over it. But when it's easy to keep making the same old mistakes and you're stuck in doing stupid over and over, you'll regret it. And so if, if, if someone can face that and say, you know, I, I need to really have some strong guardrails so that the Holy Spirit has enough space in my life to do the deeper work, then it's worth it every time. Yeah, I, I just found that quote so profound to me because I, I grew up in the 80s and, you know, I was nine years old when the Berlin Wall was was coming down. And thank you, David Hasselhoff, for, you know, going to, to Berlin to, <laughs> to help, you know, inaugurate yeah. that. I think he was on top of the wall. But, but I say that because that wall was a divide between East Germany and West Germany. And, and people couldn't just hop over that wall. And, uh, you know, my dad, former Marine, you know, he's down in Gitmo, which is, you know, Guantanamo Bay for the non-military people. And there is a wall. There's a demilitarized zone that they can't cross. And to me, when I was hearing that quote, those are the two visual pictures that I was using, that there's this wall that you just don't cross. And, and I just, I don't know. I just think that was so profound and wanted to really ask you about that. You talk about being a pastor. You talk about, you know, having your life, I would imagine, like most pastors, in the fishbowl, right? Everyone's looking at you. Everyone, again, you know, is probably judging your, you know, not only your wife, but you, your kids, as we mentioned. You know, there's just not bad judgment, but but sometimes just judgment in general, like we look at a, pe a people's life and we're like, they should be better. They should be whatever, you know? But I wonder about that when you finally came free and, and announced it to your church, did you worry in any way about the judgment of your church people? You know, uh, Dr. Ted Roberts had warned me. He said, you know, when you get honest to this level, some people will leave because they they want their pastor to be on the pedestal. They want to believe that 
that someone, even if it's not them, that someone has their spiritual life all figured out. And that's kind of the holy guru that is leading me. Um, and so I, you know, I was prepared for that. And I think the motive was believing the stats I quoted earlier, that there were so many people that were struggling and that if I would open the door, it would help them. That my belief was if it, if it means I offend a few people and they leave, it's probably okay. Uh, they're, they're, and they're probably not going to be very happy with the kind of church we become. Uh, but those often are the, the, fair, the modern day Pharisees, if you will, that, that they're doing exactly what Jesus you know, counseled not to do, that they're so busy trying to look at the speck in someone else's eye, they've missed the log in their own because their own self-righteousness, their own, you know, religious hypocrisy is what they need to deal with. But they're so busy looking at, well, I can't believe you did this or that. And, you know, uh, that was encouraging to me actually to think, well, if that kind of person needs to leave, you know, God bless them. I hope they find a place where they fit in. But I wanted, cre- I wanted to create a church environment that people knew it was okay not to be okay. And if that meant they, they needed to face their deep, you know, religiosity and kind of come clean of that, great. That meant they needed to face drug issues or, you know, past choices that they'd never told him about. I, I wanted it to be that environment. And I think I, I just felt I needed to lead the way as the leader. And so were there those that judged? Uh, maybe. But the truth is, if, if that ever happened to this day, I still haven't heard that. What I heard instead was person after person coming up to me and saying, thank you. Because if you can be real about your story and be our pastor, then I know I can be real too. I know it's safe for me here. And, and that was worth it. Like if, if others wanted to judge or that heard about my story from the outside, I'd, you know, funny story I heard a couple of years into this experience where our, our church really had become that safe place. And we had all kinds of groups for men and women who were struggling with pornography and sexual brokenness. I, I heard that I had a reputation of being known as the porn pastor. And I was like, Oh, I'm not sure how I felt about that. Like that wasn't my ambition to become the porn pastor, but my thought was this, that if someone hears that and what it means is that's a church where you can go and be real about your issues with porn, then I'll take the title because that means we've become that safe place. And it really didn't matter to me what others thought because I was, I was free of that, that performance mode of needing to impress you to get you to like me so that I feel good about myself. Because often that's what performance is about. It's not just about performing well, it's about finding my value and being successful. And the pure desire process not only had helped me change my behaviors with pornography, it had helped me let go of that need to impress you in order to be liked and to feel like I was successful. That's fantastic. I, I love that. And I think you would gladly, as you, as you said, you would gladly accept that, uh, that moniker or that title of, of being the porn pastor. I, I think that's just profound because again, it gave people the idea that they could come and be real. And I think that is what's missing in our culture nowadays is the idea that I can't be real. I mean, social media lies to us all day long. Like we look at their lives or someone's lives and there's like, well, they're, they're perfect. They're, I mean, look at that filter, look at that, whatever. We know it's fake, but yet we still go back there for the the dopamine and the and the, the drug of social media hands up on that one sometimes but uh, but I love that so in that I'm curious about this because I know you you know you're clear that you know you believe in Jesus obviously Jesus is your Lord and Savior you've you've kind of declared that obviously in, in being a pastor and, and being in the the business of really restoring people and helping people get freedom and, and that's fantastic work I would imagine labor intensive probably heartbreaking intensive you know emotionally you know drained at times but I'm just wondering for you personally, if you didn't have God in your life or Jesus, you know, I, I think they're one and the same in, in my belief system, but if you didn't have God or Jesus in your life, could you have beaten the addiction of pornography? 
Yeah, you know, that's a great question because there's obviously groups out there that are working from a secular perspective. Um, a lot of these tools are very helpful, um, no matter what perspective you come from in terms of understanding your, your wounds and your pain and the trauma. For me, I think the reason that Christ is so crucial to this process is because at the end of the day, and I've mentioned it a few times, at the end of the day, what it's really coming down to is where do I find my identity? And, and in a need to find my identity, like in success or performance or being like, you know, pornography is a cheap and easy substitute to, to fit what you're not finding in those other pursuits. And so if you don't have Christ, my question would be, where are you going to find that identity? Because maybe you realize, oh, I've been trying to find my identity in success. What other options do you have? I'll, I'll find my identity just in being a good person in being a good dad. I mean, those are noble pursuits, but they're not significant enough to create a firm identity that now defines who I am. And so at the end of the day, that's what pure desire and the process, the gift it gave me was rediscovering a truth that I had preached countless times, you know, that our identity is in Christ and, and being known by him and loved by him is what life is about. I knew that up here in my head, I could preach about it all day, but I don't know that because of the shame in my life and the secrecy, I don't know that I deeply experienced it as a man, as a person. And in the pure desire process, as I experienced, no, I, I really am loved by God, made by him on purpose and for a person. And that's who I am. That, that identity piece, I think, is what created lasting freedom. So my fear for anyone listening you know, who doesn't have their identity rooted in Christ is that question of, well, where are you going to find your identity? And is it something solid enough that can help you maintain freedom for the long haul? Or are you just using all these tools to try to keep an old behavior at bay? Because that's, you know, kind of the, the social idea. We talk about the dry drunk in our society that he's going to AA meetings and he hasn't drunk in 20 years, but the person who he really is on the inside hasn't changed it at all. He's just figured out, you know, some tools to keep him sober. To me, that's not the goal. The goal isn't just sobriety. The goal is health. The goal is freedom, and I believe that comes through Christ and knowing who I am because of him, uh, that that's where lasting freedom really is at. All right, so I got to ask this because everything you're saying I totally agree with, right? I mean, I absolutely 100% agree with. I'm going to play the other side of the fence. If someone doesn't have Christ in their life, in your opinion, and in all your years of experience, I mean, 20-some-odd years of experience, probably longer, can they really truly be free from pornography if they don't have Christ in their life? I, I think here's the way I would answer it, Neil. Um, can they find sobriety of not using pornography anymore? Yeah, I believe they could uh, because I've heard stories and I, I know it happens, but, but are they, I would use the word, you know, are they healthy? Are, are they free in the way that they are free from the need to impress others? Are they free from, you know, living off the opinions of others? Because freedom is to me a much deeper word than just am I avoiding that one behavior? So can the person without Christ find a life of true health and freedom that goes beyond just avoiding a bad behavior, that's where I would say no. I would say they're just going to transfer those needs to something else. And they might be safer needs like, or, or safer outlets like becoming a workaholic or becoming you know successful at their job or becoming successful at, you know, working out. I mean, this hobby of, well, now I'm an exercise guru and that kind of defines me. Those can be more socially appropriate addictions, if you will, but are they free? I, I wouldn't say that person is free because they're still trying to find their identity in something they do rather than finding that ultimate freedom in who they are and who God has made them to be through Christ. Yeah. I just, I don't know. I just think that was a powerful question to ask because, you know, I have, 
a couple of friends that are atheists friends they have told me for years well i don't i don't need christ in my life i'm i'm good you know i'm i'm fine i don't need him i don't want him i, I don't want anything to do with him I'm, i mean look at me over here i'm I, i'm successful in this business or i'm successful over here i'm successful in that i'm like yeah but are you really healthy in what you're saying are you truly you know free and i love one of the uh, studies that you guys do you talk about coping mechanisms and i just wonder if they're replacing that addiction for something yeah. else that's really just masking masking yeah, that. Yeah, so absolutely. good stuff there. You mentioned uh, Dr. Ted, who is the author of the book Pure Desire, which in my mind is an amazing book. I'm sure there's a lot of amazing books that you guys offer as far as healing and help and encouragement and studies and things like that. But that book, there there are probably three books in my life, maybe four, that have changed my life forever. One, of course, being the Bible. Second being this book written by Dean Smith called uh, The Carolina Way. It's a whole nother story gotcha. obsession with huh. me. Roy Wood. William's book. He wrote a pretty good one. Surely behind that one, and it, it is a very small gap, was Ted's book, Pure Desire. That book changed my life forever. There's one chapter in particular talking about the mulligan. And at the time I was really into golf and this idea of getting a do-over, this resetting no. uh, to me is still something that resonates in my heart and my, in my mind. But but on that, I'm, I'm curious about this. What was the greatest advice that you received on your road to, to getting recovery and, and freedom? Yeah, boy, the greatest advice. Um, you know, I, I, I've shared a little bit, but you know, Dr. Ted Roberts was my counselor back in 2010 when we first came to Pure Desire, and and my relationship with him is much of what led to me stepping into this job and and in a sense filling his shoes moving forward. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be Ted Roberts. I I'm really trying to help Pure Desire build a, a reputation that far outlives Ted Roberts, but. One of the things that Ted said to me early on is he said, Nick, I, I think you'll find your struggle with pornography um, has almost nothing to do with pornography, that it's being driven by your deeper wounds. I remember I, I argued with him. I was like, mm, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I've got a good family, good background, pretty healthy. Like, I just have this one struggle I can't seem to figure out. And I think it's just because I'm, you know, I'm drawn to pictures of pretty women and can't seem to stop. And he kind of knowingly smiled and nods and said, well, we'll see, you know, and, you know, four or five months into the counseling, I had to come back and say, you're, you're right. It's not actually about the porn. The porn is a substitute for much deeper needs I have of feeling valued and respected and loved. And I had never made those connections. I mean, and if, if someone had tried to tell me that up front, I'd think I'd have been like, whatever, that's just, you know, psychology mumbo jumbo. And I don't, I've got the gospel. I don't need that. But, but the truth was there were all of these unaddressed patterns of when, when ministry wasn't enough, and by the way, ministry will never be enough. But when ministry wasn't enough to feel good about myself, there was this siren call of pornography saying, we can make you feel better. For a few minutes, you'll feel like you're the king of the world. And my brain got hooked on that, that feeling that for a few minutes, everything was perfect. And even though it was followed by the avalanche of guilt and shame that would come afterwards, that's what would draw me back. And so it wasn't just the pictures of pretty women. It was what it was doing for me in my brain. And, and there was literally neurochemistry, the chemicals in my brain reinforcing it. Like that was mind blowing as I really got into that. And so I, I think that's still the best advice that I've, I've heard and now find myself telling a lot of people, if, if you have a sexual addiction, a porn addiction, it's not about sex. It's not about porn. It's about how you're using it to escape pain or to mask wounds in your life. And until you get to that deeper stuff, you'll just use, you know, like we were talking about earlier, you'll just use something else to, to medicate or to escape pain. 
uh, going back to my friend Zach again, uh, he he has one more question for you that I that I just uh, discovered in my okay. notes here. So my friend Zach, as I mentioned, was let go from a church and you know had to go to counseling and uh, as part of his recovery efforts, made a deal with his wife to do that and took about a year of counseling to to walk through that. And about midway through the year of going through counseling, Zach had shared with me that his counselor had come out and said, "Listen, you don't have an addiction to porn. You have an." addiction to other things like anger is really the reason why you're going to porn is because when you're angry when you're upset when you're feeling lonely when you're feeling depressed that's when you go to that guaranteed and you need to stop saying you're addicted to porn you're addicted to pain because you like to be in pain and you like to sit in your pain and you like to feel the pain rather than dealing with it and verbalizing it and getting help from your pain you mask it as you're saying to something else solid advice from the counselor, I would imagine. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's very true. You know, what I'd say to Zach is what I'd say to all the guys I've had in group with me that that pornography or sex or clubs, you know, whatever it is you go to, that is not the root. That's the fruit. That's the outcome. The root are that you don't know how to deal. It's just what you're saying. You don't know how to deal with loneliness. You don't know how to deal with boredom. You don't know how to deal with rejection. You don't know how to feel, how to deal with being um, neglected or overlooked, passed over for a promotion. So because we don't know how to deal with those strong negative emotions, pornography or sex or whatever becomes the, the fruit or the outcome of those roots. And so really the healing process isn't just about stopping the pornography. The healing process and why it's lasting change is learning healthier ways to deal with feeling alone, learning better ways to deal with rejection, learning better ways to, to understand when I feel betrayed or hurt or overlooked, what do I do with that? Um, that then we lead to better fruit and better outcomes, but you can't, you know, it's, it's that idea. Like if I've got a tree that's producing bad apples, I can't just sit around and try to make the apples better by, by working on the apples, you know, painting them and, and, you know, spraying with, with fruit spray. So they smell better. It's like, everyone would say that's ridiculous. You got to look at the tree, like the roots and what, what's causing the issue. That's exactly the, the same with pornography or other sexual addictions. Like, the issue, the sex addiction isn't the issue. It's something deeper. And until you tap into that, you're going to keep getting bad fruit. Yeah. And I don't know about anybody else. Anybody wants bad fruit. So yeah, just no, I don't even like bananas. <laughs> so it's just one fruit. I just can't get, get around just to taste. Nobody wants bad yeah, bananas. Even exactly. I uh, but that's awesome. So as we wrap up today, I want to give you an opportunity because Listen, I know Pure Desire can help. And by the way, for those that might be listening, you're like, wow, okay, so this is just a plug to get, you know, me signed up for Pure Desire. No, I want you to know that Nick is not coming on to secretly like underneath the table, like slip us some 20 bucks so we talk about Pure Desire. No, I just know that he's a man that has walked through this and has come out the other side and is better for it. So if you're in this mode right now, right, and you're hearing Nick and you're hearing me and you're like, man, Neil's friend Zach is pretty screwed up. Yes, he is. We'll pray for him. Uh, We'll lay hands on him, maybe anoint him afterwards. If somebody's listening right now and they're like Zach or they're like someone else that they know, because we can't like look at ourselves and say, no, it's not my problem. But I know someone that does have that problem, even though it might be us. But how can someone come and get help and healing from you guys? And, and what are the best steps for them to take after hearing this today? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, where everyone's at is different and we've got to start where we are. And, and that's what Pure Desire tries to do is just help people where they are. And so if they're a spouse that's feeling betrayed, you know, resources that can help them understand what they're feeling and how to rebuild trust. If if they're the ones struggling, if they're the parent with, you know, kids who are struggling or someone that they care about, we have resources to help. And so really it's by going to puredesire.org, 
Uh, that's our website. That's kind of the funnel into everything. That's where you could find connection with a counselor. If you need to dive into the, the deep end of counseling help, we have groups that meet around the country or online. You could find out where all those groups are and join a group. We're on our store page. All of our resources are there. Um, so those are kind of the steps of engagement, engage with a group, engage with counseling. But even prior to that, you know, you'll find free resources like five steps to freedom from pornography, a free ebook, um, a free ebook on seven keys to understanding betrayal. Um, or we have a weekly podcast and weekly blog. We're just, we're trying to equip people to understand the struggle and what next steps look like. So they can engage with us there at, at puredesire.org and whatever the next step looks like, you know, we're here to help. Yeah. And Nick, again, I, I just think that's fantastic that you guys are doing this great work. And, you know, little did I know that you were so close to me in my backyard. I mean, I, again, I had heard about Ted years ago and didn't make the correlation of being the same entity, which, you know, that's me just being a silly dummy, I guess. Sometimes I'm excited that you were here today and, and that you gave us a moment. With that being said, I want to play a game with you. Are, are you okay if we play a game? Don't worry. It's not like a trivia game. It's just a, a fun game that we like to wrap the show up with. So Okay. I'll give it a shot. All right. So it's uh, it's this game called Senseless. Now, Nick, I, I know you know senses, right? We have how many of them? Just asking for a friend. Uh, I've heard we have five. That is correct. We do have five. That is not how the game is played, but we do have a die in here. I don't know if you're a big basketball fan. We we didn't really get into that, but I mean, you are in the backyard of the Blazers. So I would think you got to have some Damian Lillard love, maybe, yeah. you know? Yeah, I'm big, big Blazers fan. Okay. All right. Just checking. So here we go. So uh, we're going to play this game. It's called Senseless. I'm going to roll because you're still like four-ish, five hours from me. But this is awesome. So this this is the question. You got this number here. Can you read that for us? Two. There you go. Okay. Just so people know I'm not cheating. been accused of cheating at my own game, believe it or not. Here is question number two, and that's this, Nick. Who is touching your life right now? That's a good question. Who is touching my life right now? I'm thinking of a, a variety of contexts I'm in. You know, I'm in a weekly group still, and the guys there mean a lot to me. Um, obviously, my wife, a, a very close connection. Uh, a book that I've been reading where I, I feel like the, the author's kind of counseling me towards greater relational health, if you will. Um, so it's a, I'm probably going to butcher the name. I think his name is Christian Cossey, and the, the book's called The Joy Switch. And just thinking about how do we stay engaged relationally and not kind of go into our, our dark mode of, <laughs> of getting critical and judgmental of people. And so that, that's actually been touching me a lot just to think in my interactions with my kids, my coworkers, like, how do I stay relational, stay kind, stay compassionate and not slip into that defensive mode of why are they attacking me? And because I think we all get that. So that, that's been probably the most significant life touch in the last few weeks. That's fantastic. Yeah. Speaking of the Blazers, do you, have you been to a Blazer game? Just asking again for a friend. Yeah, I actually got to go to the, uh, the game four playoff game, uh, in their series against the Denver Nuggets. So, wow. Okay. Uh, that was my first live sporting event in almost two years because of COVID. That, thank you, COVID, for that, by the way. My wife and I got to go a number of years back, and we got to go see him play the Wizards. And probably me, roughly six-ish feet, eight feet, was John Wall, the uh, all-star guard wow. at the time, was playing awesome. for, the, for the Wizards. Now he's, a, now he's a rocket. So just curious, without Googling, do you know the seating capacity of the Rose Quarter, Rose Garden? Do you know, by chance? Uh, it's, I'm pretty sure it's just a little over 20,000. Yeah. So it's just shy actually 19,980. So just saying. Oh. So the reason why I ask you that question is imagine just for a second, we have full capacity in the Rose quarter, Rose garden, whatever you want to call it. I don't know. It's her, it's been the Moto center, all these stupid yeah, it's names. The that Moto it's been. Center now. Yeah. But, uh, but imagine we're center court with you 
and I hand this microphone to you and we got people from all walks of life, young, old, you know, so we'll just say 16 to, you know, I don't know, 65. And they're there because they have one desire and, and pun intended there, one desire they have somehow identified in their life that, hey, I've struggled on some level with pornography. What would you say to that crowd right now as we as we wrap up? Yeah, I, I think if I could maybe put it in one thought or phrase, you know, I would I would ask the crowd, what is your purpose? Because research, and this is um, backed up by research, has found that men without a sense of purpose in life are seven times more likely to struggle with addictive behaviors. And, and it reveals to me that, again, going back to that root and fruit illustration, um, if we keep battling the fruits and not looking at the roots, we're going to keep getting outcomes we don't want. And so we've got to go to that deeper question. What, what's my purpose? Why am I here? And I believe ultimately that's what takes us to understanding that we have a creator and a God that made us on purpose and for a purpose. And if we can discover who we really are made to be, then a lot of those things that we use to cope or that we reach out to that we don't want, they will start to fall off because we're really discovering the truth of who we are. Um, and apart from that, we're just going to keep, you know, we're going to be playing that whack-a-mole game of, like, I dealt with pornography, now something else is popping. I got to figure out how to whack that mole down and, until we discover our purpose. And I think in that conversation, then I would try to connect it, obviously, to the purpose that I find in Christ and who he's made us to be. We're going to keep looking for that identity. And so what's your purpose? Find your purpose. And that ultimately is the way out of all addictive behaviors. Yeah, I just... Nick, that is so profound, and I think, uh, I just know the crowd would just love it. Hopefully, they would absorb it, and <laughs> hopefully, they would apply it to their lives. Uh, man, I just want to say thanks again for coming on. With that being said, guys and gals alike, I just want to challenge you in this regard today. What is your purpose? I know Rick Warren's famous for writing The Purpose Driven Life, and, and maybe you've been going down this road of this addictive behavior, this cycle of addiction. And, and I want to tell you right now, if you are in any level or you know someone or are in love with someone that is on this cycle, can you just give them this show today? Will you just say, hey, go listen to this guy? Not Neil, because, you know, I'm just a, you know, I'm just a guy. And, and not that Nick's any higher than I am, but I think he would echo this sentiment. There can be freedom and you can find it. And, and I just want to challenge you on that today, that maybe this is the moment. Maybe this is the time that you say August 18th, 2021 is my moment where I'm going to say, nope, it stops here. And so let that be your challenge today is, is maybe, maybe find a way to stop it. And not just maybe, actually take some action step to do that. Again, check them out. Pure Desire, links in our show notes. If you're not sure how to Google that, which I'm not sure how you don't know that, but, uh, but there'll be some links in the show notes go ahead and check out take a look at those and just remember this as we wrap up today remember this remember when you walk in other people's shoes you really do get a different perspective on life stay tuned until next week we'll be right back here as we walk in other people's shoes